1: Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com.
2: You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new?
1: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line from Florida, sunny, beautiful Florida, by Michael Pina of SP Nation. Michael, you're just getting your Hemingway on down there. What's going on, man? Yeah, that's exactly right. Just uh, got my my toes in the sand
3: out here in Sanibel Island, my first time. My. Uh, my wife has been going here, coming here ever since she was a little girl. So, uh, she decided to finally, uh, bring me along
1: and it's, it's beautiful. I'm loving it. How are the locals treating you? Because obviously they've heard about you, Michael. If she's been going there her whole <laughs> life. They've got the whole aura of Michael Pena. Have you been warmly received? Of course. I'm warmly received wherever I go, I feel like.
3: I don't ruffle feathers. So, I mean, there's been lines and lines of autograph seekers. But besides that, uh, it's been, it's been good. It's been yeah, that, calm.
1: That's good. Yeah. I, I'm warmly received wherever I go as one of those statements that could go either way. It could absolutely be true, <laughs> and it could absolutely be false. We'll never know. Uh, Michael, we've got a few things to just kind of catch up on from this week in the NBA. Um, you know, of course, we had the big kind of showdown matchup between LeBron James and Zion Williamson uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, which got a lot of hype, a lot of attention. They both played very well. LeBron had a season high, and I think Zion held his own as well. But we also had another showdown out east between the Milwaukee Bucks uh, and the Toronto Raptors. And needless to say, Milwaukee handled its business. I mean, worked Toronto uh, late in that game, setting up all sorts of questions about, all right, well, where's this going for them? Uh, you know, does their bar just continue to keep rising? So we're going to dig into both of those topics. And then, of course, we're going to handle a bunch of hilarious emails that we got from the Open Floor Globe. And they emailed us openfloormail at gmail.com, Mail at gmail.com. But let's start with LeBron versus Zion, just the absolute lowest possible hanging fruit. It's an orange tree for you out there in uh, Florida, Michael. What <laughs> did you think of their showdown? What was your major takeaway, um, you know, from how they looked on the court and and maybe even the postgame interviews too? Uh, yeah,
3: I mean, I was super pumped about this game as any NBA fan should be. And I mean, my immediate takeaway, I have two. Uh, and I'll just like tie them both to LeBron and Zion, which is what everyone wants to talk about. Um, I feel like LeBron's performance was just just epic. I mean, that was, that was old school, back to the basket, bully ball. He had Drew Holiday on him for pretty much all four quarters, and he got whatever he wanted on him. I mean, he finished with 40, obviously, and he had the three ball going, and he would punish the Pelicans defense whenever they would screw up a switch, or they would they kept going under the screen on him, which, uh, I mean, he was probably not too, uh, impressed by. Um, but I, I, I just, I love when LeBron is just, I mean, do you remember like years ago earlier in his career when it was like, Oh, when will LeBron get a post game? It's like, we are so past that. And like, he was finishing with the left. He was finishing with the baby hooks. He was drawing fouls. I mean, he had everything going and I felt pretty bad for Drew holiday
1: by the end of it. Um, well, oh, yeah, Gian. so real quick, my take on yeah. that is, I mean, this came 24 hours after Diana Taurasi, arguably the greatest women's player of all time, went on stage in front of millions of people and said he didn't have a <laughs> turnaround jumper. And I believe she was joking, but she also just really zinged him. And it was, I mean, it, it opened my eyes when she said that, um, kind of using him as the punchline to say, well, Gianna's got to turn around and LeBron barely has one. I felt like LeBron was like, yeah, that's like a cool joke, Diana, but uh, by the way, I have a turnaround jumper and I can deploy it whenever I want. And you're right to to bring up the years of criticism of that part of his game. We should also look at this season. They've had a lot of struggles in clutch moments um, where the offense just has not worked right, where LeBron's been out front, you know, and maybe tired legs, heavy legs, late in games. He's actually settled for three-pointers off the dribble a lot uh, earlier in this season, and it really hasn't worked that well um, there's a reason why everybody's going under his the screens because he hasn't shot the three ball great, especially mm-hmm. in clutch situations. So I do think it's part of like a concerted effort from the Lakers to rethink what they're trying to do when they really need a bucket, right? When they really need somewhere else to go. And I think that their conclusion is, well, let's put LeBron in the post, especially if he's against an undersized defender, and good things will happen. We saw it against Jalen Brown on that Sunday night game against Boston, where he hits basically Mm -hmm. the the turnaround game winner. And then we see it over and over uh, against Drew Holiday uh, in that matchup, too.
3: Yeah, uh, 100% agree with everything you just said. I mean, pivoting real quick to Zion and his performance. I mean, obviously, he gets to the line 19 times, scores 29 points. Uh, I was just fascinated by how he... There were sequences where he just bullied Anthony Davis. And the contrasting features there are just so fascinating to me. I mean, one, you have like the second heaviest guy in the league who's super explosive. And then you have a guy who will probably win or, or finish second in Defensive Player of the Year in Anthony Davis. And, I mean, they guarded each other, and I would say Zion got the better of, of AD on the night for the most part. And, I mean, there was one se- sequence where he was a... Zion was a role man, and, uh, you know, he just, like, s- speed-bursted past AD, who had really good position as the, the role man defender in a drop coverage, and he met him at the rim... And it didn't matter. Zion made the layup. Now, Zion had his fair share of misses in those confrontations. But it just, like, goes to show, like, it, this is one of the best defenders in the world. And everybody knows what Zion is going to do. He does not have the mid-range jump shot. Besides his debut, he's really not shooting three-pointers at all. And he still gets to the basket and finishes. It's, it's so remarkable. Like, once he actually figures out how to play... He's going to be just such an unstoppable basketball player. I mean, this was against Anthony Davis. It's insane.
1: No question. I mean, it was kind of shades of that preseason matchup with Gobert, right? Where he's just like, yeah, I mean, I understand that you're long, really talented, experienced, and smart, but I'm going right at your chest. I'm trying to get to the rim every single time. And good luck to you, sir. You know, I mean, that's sort of his mentality at all times. Zion, you mentioned him getting to the free throw line. Maybe my favorite exchange of the whole game was he used a that quick spin, rip through move to beat Dwight Howard in back-to-back quick succession. And the mm-hmm. second time he did it, as he was walking towards the baseline after getting the foul call for the second time in a row, he just goes, Every time. He tells one of his teammates that. I could hear him say that. And I felt like, you know, a member of his family. Like, yeah, every time, too. It's Zion, <laughs> like sitting there in like, the third row. Because it's true. Like, what was he supposed to do to stop him? It's not like he can magically become quicker uh and and guess Zion's moves. And I think when Zion goes from zero to sixty in those bursts. It's very unpredictable. Guys just aren't used to it yet. They don't know exactly which direction he's going to go. Uh, it's almost like slithery in his own way. I mean, going back to the body types thing for him and Anthony Davis. Wouldn't you love to be there when like the tailor is taking their measurements for their pants? I mean, they've got to be a lot different. <laughs> you know, they're not wearing the same size. Uh, let's put it that way. I mean, they really are contrasting body types. And that's what's so fun about watching Zion in person and and on TV too. I I really do think it translates um, on television. He moves in a different way and uh, everyone, it's always all eyes on him. I mean, I thought LeBron had all eyes on him too at at times during that game when he was breaking out in transition um, or he was trying to, uh, you know, go basically from the free throw line extended to the rim. It's just like everybody's just kind of reduced to being gawkers at this point of his career. No, I
3: mean, speaking of Gawkers, so I watched that game, I'm down here in Florida, I'm with some family, and my sister-in-law's boyfriend is here, and he's from the Netherlands, and he has lived there his whole life, like an hour south of uh, Amsterdam. And he knows absolutely nothing about the NBA. Like he barely knows who LeBron is. Like, well, just absol- Michael,
1: if that's true, just go ahead and keep talking trash about him right now. Just lay it on thick. I mean, boy, you're really throwing this poor guy under the bus in front of thousands and thousands of listeners right now.
3: No, no, he's he's the best. He's the best. Um, but so we're watching. I'm like, I'm like, sit down here. We have this like 120 inch gigantic TV in our our hotel room here. And so we're sitting down, I'm like, here, watch, we're we're watching Bucks Raptors, that wraps up, I'm explaining to him who Giannis is, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like don't even worry about what just happened that was all cool but you're about to watch Zion Williamson like this is just a transcendent freak of nature and I'm just watching him watch Zion and he's just like what is this is a human being what is like what is happening I don't even understand he's like this is the second heaviest guy in the league how does he move like that like are they studying his body or scientists putting him in a lab like it was it was it was really funny just to watch with someone who has no idea even who Zion is didn't know he existed and to respond the way he did. It's like how I respond, but I, I'm familiar with Zion if that makes any sense. And like no,
1: I'm with you. And every every time I watch him, it's like those viral videos where they give the kids who like can't see very well new glasses and all of a sudden they just like break out in tears because they can see again. <laughs> That's me literally every time I watch Zion play basketball. Um, so and it's not just me, like I was saying, the players, but the pregame scene. You know, 50 plus people on the baseline waiting for Zion to basically go through like half speed warm ups. Uh, post game, probably the largest post game media contingent for a road team at a Lakers game that I can remember. I mean, I was basically sprinting like Michael Johnson to get from uh, LeBron's post game back to Zion's because, you know, in that situation, it's like you can't choose, right? Like you, you got to try to do both. Um, you know Zion is already taking his time with the post game. Apparently, he works out after games because, of course, he works out after games, uh, and you know that's delaying everything for forty five minutes or so. Um, and yet, people stayed around and asked a million LeBron questions. This is one thing I want to dig into, though, Michael. It, it ties into his uh, Zion's first matchup with Giannis, where I thought the big takeaway from him was just the fearlessness factor. It was like, yeah, if Giannis has the ball, I'm going to go rip it out of his hands. If Giannis blocks me, I'm going to still challenge him. There's not really like an intimidation factor or getting his feet wet factor at all about Zion. It's just sort of like, yeah, I'm already here. I mean, he just kind of carries himself like he's a third or fourth year pro already, it was pretty much the same deal with LeBron. Like he was getting asked questions about LeBron and he was getting annoyed, Michael. At one point he started laughing when someone said, hey, is it surreal to share the court with LeBron? I mean, it was almost like a reflexive laugh. Like, come on, like what's up with this disrespectful question? Like I'm an NBA player too. Like, what do you mean surreal to share the court with them? And, um, you know, he, he kept getting asked at one point, he's like, look guys, he's an incredible player. I don't know what else you want me to say. What aren't you getting about that, right? Like, and- it's just different because most young guys, when they come into that media environment in LA, which for sure is very LeBron centric at this point, right? Um, They just kiss the ring. Like they're ready for it. They've been prepared for by the PR guys. They have like one good answer. They give it and they get it out of the way. And Zion didn't really seem to have any interest in kissing the ring when it came to LeBron. And on your flip side, LeBron... Was pretty brief in his compliments of Zion, saying he, his game is a perfect fit for the modern NBA style. He did call him explosive for his size, which is like, you know, pretty much the most generic compliment you can give uh, Zion at this point. But one of the standout moments came when a guy asked LeBron, you know, basically, have you guys ever met? Like, have you ever had a sit down and talked? And LeBron's kind of notorious or famous for mentoring a lot of these young players. And LeBron's answer, and I quote, I've never met him. I've never met him before, never. Never had a conversation (laughs) with him, never met him before, Michael. So if we're counting that up, it's one, two, three, four, five nevers in an 11 second clip. And I'm just curious, like, if someone asked me about you and that was my answer publicly, (laughs) like, how would you feel? How would you take that? It's a little weird, right? I'm not reaching here too far, am I? No, and I,
3: I, just to like, wildly speculate about what's going on here behind the scenes I wonder and maybe this is already public information that I'm unaware of but I do wonder if Clutch made a run at him and he gave them the cold shoulder or is that do you think that is a potential cause for this I mean it's like I didn't see any of these post-game press conferences or, or, or scrums or anything like that but Judging by what you just said, like, it seemed pretty cold and shivery. So, like,
1: yeah, do no, you I, think I, that yeah,
3: that's I, potentially a cause for it?
1: I think you're going down the right uh, angle. I remember at All-Star Weekend, not this year, but last year, LeBron was asked about Zion because he was really gaining a lot of momentum at Duke. And LeBron really poured on the praise pretty thick. You know, he was saying that he's all about the right things. He keeps the main thing the main thing. His basketball intelligence shines through on the court. I do believe there was some level of courtship. They were supposed to go to a game at one point. Um, and maybe they did actually go to a game and sit courtside to watch him. Zion wound up not signing with clutch. And I think it's an unavoidable uh, series of events here. Like it has to be mentioned because it's very strange. But what it also reminds me of is kind of how Giannis has always kept a healthy distance from LeBron too. Mm-hmm. You know, like Kevin and Kevin Durant and LeBron have been in commercials together Uh, Draymond and LeBron, obviously the the Clutch Family Mafia, has brought them closer together, and a lot of NBA players have appeared on the shop. You know LeBron's TV show, where you know I think some older heads from like the '80s and '90s would be like, "What is happening?" You know, like you're not supposed to be congregating with your enemies, let alone like. You know, getting your hair cut while drinking wine on national television. That's just, you know, crossing the line from a competitive standpoint. But Giannis has always been kind of old school about it. Like he turned down the Space Jam invite. Um, You know, he basically says he never hangs out with guys, you know, during the summer. And there's always been that healthy distance. And I feel like Zion's kind of headed down that path too. And I love it. I think it just adds to that fearlessness part that I'm describing. It's like, look, if I'm coming in here, As a phenomenon of my own making, you know, he's already worth nine figures, I'm sure at least, Uh, you know, he's standing on his own too. He doesn't necessarily need to be in this, uh, you know, LeBron extended family like a lot of young guys are. I think it's actually a really smart marketing move from Zion to just kind of be his own guy. You don't want to be in that shadow. You don't want to constantly be compared to LeBron and that's going to be unavoidable just because they're both such physical presences. And uh, frankly, I love it. I want the beef. All right. I think round two needs to be this Cold War that you're describing. This frigid, uh, you know, tension maybe that's there. Let's explode it a little bit. Let's see what happens. Let's get a number one versus number eight first round series. Let's get a bunch of questions for both guys about the other, and eventually somebody will snap, right? Don't you think?
3: Yeah, I have a few things also that I've been per- that have been percolating in my mind since you passed along the outline and. Uh, You know, suggesting that we might have a new rivalry on our hands. I mean, the the post-game on TV uh, interview that LeBron had with Chris Haynes, uh, you know, he called him special, to be fair. He did use that word. And uh, he did cite, which you also referenced, how Zion's game was perfect for kind of the track meet style of today's game. And I kind of read that, honestly, as a backhanded compliment. Yeah. Like... You are really good in transition. Um, you don't have a jumper. We'll see how you do in the playoffs
1: or in a setting where you need half-court skills. Uh, yeah, anybody I, yeah. anybody can score 25 at today's NBA. What about my NBA? Was LeBron almost channeling a little bit of his own grumpy Michael Jordan here, Michael?
3: <laughs> Potentially. I mean, there was that play where... He waved away JaVel McGee's screen and wanted to take Zion one-on-one and isolate from the top of the key, and he ended up, I believe, hitting a three over the top, Um, which, I mean, sometimes LeBron will do something like that, and that's not super unusual for that situation, but... He did make a show of waving away the screen in a setting where he would normally just take it and go downhill and probably throw the lob to JaVale and get the easy two. So I thought that that was also really interesting. And then real quick, like, I do wonder if there's an AD factor here. Like, if Zion saves basketball in New Orleans and does what Anthony Davis could not accomplish in his seven or eight years or however long he was down there... Uh, as a Pelican, um, you know, obviously, like, ownership and the front office were different, uh, and it's two different situations. But, like, if Zion does what AD doesn't, like, it, do you think that at any level this is LeBron kind of protecting his teammate who probably feels or could potentially feel a little perturbed by what Zion is doing and what Anthony Davis could not?
1: Um, I'm not sure. I, I think there's an AD angle. I think it's more like, if you're Zion coming into the league, it's a little bit awkward to have Anthony Davis is kind of like shadow cast over your organization. You're kind of in this limbo, right? And so I would think it's actually more like resentment from the New Orleans Pelicans and, and Zion side of how that whole thing played out, where like LeBron's basically just like plucking a star out of their team and like, you know, kind of leaving them in the dust. I think that's more of it rather than LeBron playing big brother. Because I do think that, you know, Davis is established enough where, And they're going to be making a deep playoff run here, and they're going to be getting plenty of attention and accolades. Like I don't really think he needs to feel threatened by Zion at this moment. Now, long-term, big picture, uh, that's a different story. I think it's a fair point. I'm just not sure that, that that's motivating LeBron. I think you hit kind of the nail on the head in terms of what the other issues could be. I think for sure, the representation side of things with Clutch, But I also think it's this idea of okay, they're comparing Zion to me. But if you're LeBron, you had incredible technique and feel and command of the game, playmaking ability, vision, the comparisons to Magic Johnson, all of that stuff when you were younger than Zion, right? And I think that that's a layer of LeBron's game that frankly, we may never see matched by anyone after him ever again, right? I mean, to, to conceive of a player, who thinks the game and orchestrates the game as well as LeBron uh, coming along, it's pretty mind-blowing, right? Even the guys that I sing their praises the absolute loudest, Giannis, Zion, no chance. They're never going to get to that level for that part of the game. So if I was LeBron and I was hearing comparisons to Zion, that would actually really annoy me. I'd be like, yeah, he's great in transition. Yes, he's amazing dunker. Yes, he's huge and moves like crazy. But this guy is not on my level in a lot of specific ways. And it would actually probably genuinely bother me if I was a competitive guy in that spot. So I do think that that might be kind of the undertones here of this conversation. But like you said earlier, we're just speculating, you know, we're just watching a brewing beef and trying to stoke the fire a little bit and, <laughs> and see what uh, develops. But I absolutely encourage everybody in the Open Floor Globe, keep your eye on this one. It was weird. I was there for both interviews. Neither one went the way I thought it would. I thought LeBron would kind of crown him as the young king, quote unquote, and kind of give him 30 seconds of generic praise. That would be that. I thought Zion would come out and say, oh yeah, it was so cool to play against LeBron here in Staples Center and he instead he was like yeah it's a nice arena <laughs> like lebron's an incredible player <laughs> like he just didn't want any part of it and it, it lo- i mean it made me love zion even more and it did make me think that lebron might be entering that uh, that late career mic stage of just like all oh, these young guys these whippersnappers and uh, you know both sides of it were fun yeah i'm hanging on the to the, the clutch
3: theory that's cuz i love blaming it clutch for everything
0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with the seven every weekday. So follow the seven right now.
1: Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh?
0: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh <laughs> my God. Ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I've
1: been ah,
0: ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, Tanner, girl go shopping. Yeah, baby.
2: Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
1: Well, look, uh, we've been talking rivalries here, personal rivalries here uh, the last 20 minutes or so, but let's jump into, I guess, what we call a team-by-team rivalry, Milwaukee and Toronto. Now, they played on Tuesday night. Milwaukee won pretty handily, pretty impressively. Uh, Maybe it wasn't the greatest game that Giannis has ever played, but they took care of business. And, you know, coming away from that game, you know, I kind of dug through their game log. And at this point, they're 7-2 against the Celtics, the Raptors, the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Sixers. And I think those are the teams that we kind of entered the season saying, all right, if there's going to be a threat here for Milwaukee, those are the teams. Um... I do think we focused a lot on the two from that 7-2 and two this season because one of the two was that opening night loss to Boston or the early season loss to Boston, which drove me crazy because they blew the, the huge lead in the second half. And the other one was the Christmas Day loss to Philadelphia, obviously, um, where everything went wrong. Philly couldn't miss a shot, and it looked like the Sixers were going to win the title for about two and a half hours. But 7-2, <laughs> and two, with those being the only two, uh, you know, that's that's an impressive body of work. And obviously, you know, 50 and eight speaks for itself. But when they're beating consistently and handily you know, the other top competition, I'm wondering if we just need to get take this into like a boat race type of conversation. Like, are these guys about to go 12 and two through the Eastern Conference playoffs, 12 and one through the Eastern Conference playoffs? Is all this hype about who's the biggest threat to Milwaukee basically hot air? I mean, I don't know. Where do you come down on that one? Uh, I mean, to get into a conversation about regular
3: season versus the playoffs, I do think that what happens in the playoffs is obviously very different from what happens in the regular season in terms of, I think the Milwaukee Bucks are, you know, they don't play to their competition. They play to their own style and their own aesthetic and their own strategy. Like they have the system that they, they have where they drop the big, they protect the pain at all costs. They, they've, let you shoot a bunch of threes but they'll try to take away the threes from the three-point shooters that are are capable on the opposing team and that's a really good defensive recipe to have the best defense in the league like you, you take away the t- toughest shots you do not foul and you have like gigantic rim protectors and a guy like Giannis who can just do whatever you want him to do so I think that that's interesting but like I do wonder about in the playoffs sometimes if Bud will Uh, will he adjust to the the rhythms of a a certain playoff series? You know, like, will he overextend Giannis? Will he bench Brook Lopez if he needs to? Will he switch instead of drop? Will he, you know, go small for an extended period of time? Will they really prioritize taking away the three ball instead of letting teams fire away? Uh, So I'm interested to see how that all plays out. Um, So I'm not ready to just be like, I mean, I, I am impressed, well, obviously, by the Bucks, but no, I, I'm not ready you. to just
1: yeah yeah. yeah. No, I hear I hear you on that concern. I'm just wondering, is Giannis bud proof now? Like, is Giannis so good and so dominant against some of these Eastern Conference teams he's going to have to face that even Bud can't screw this up like he did last year by not playing Giannis enough? Like, I feel like the only adjustment Milwaukee needs to make is to not take Giannis out of the game for as long as they took him out during last year's playoffs. He's only playing 31 minutes a night right now, which is just absolutely obscene. His per 36 stats right now, 35, 16, and 7. So if we're saying Giannis plays 40 minutes in the, <laughs> so in ridiculous. the, in the games that matter... In the postseason, right? Like if you actually get deep into a series and you're playing this adjustment game and it's like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Nick Nurse just brought out this crazy wrinkle. If you just play Giannis 40 minutes a night and he's averaging 40, 18 and nine in in the 40 minutes, um, is that the solution here? I mean, I'm just kind of getting vibes where we're focusing on their one really bad week from last from last May against Toronto, which was a horrible week. And we're kind of missing the forest through the trees, which has been like, for two years, they've been completely ridiculously dominant, smoked basically everyone, including everyone they faced in the playoffs up to that really bad week against Toronto. Giannis is not the same player he was even at the start of last season. He's definitely ramped up from, uh you know, from leadership standpoint, experience standpoint, offensive, uh, just, uh, you know, efficiency or ruthlessness standpoint, defensive intensity and awareness standpoint, comfort with his teammates standpoint. Like I, it feels to me like they're just ascendant. Like it's like a stock market that's just going up and up and up and up and up. And it doesn't mean they're going to, you know, win the whole title necessarily. But like when I'm trying to compare them against Toronto, who they played the other night, or Boston, who's lurking probably as the biggest threat to them, given how Tatum's playing, or Philadelphia. I mean, those teams, they just kind of feel like not even close. Is that too strong? I mean, I would give those teams a chance. I, I
3: wouldn't give Philadelphia a chance, but I would give the Celtics and the Raptors a chance, because I think anything can happen in a seven-game series when you're as talented and as versatile as, as those teams are. But I also just really want to quickly shout out Chris Middleton um, and not shortchange him because I think he gets lost in a lot of these conversations about the Bucks and their system and Bud, and that's why they're great. In the last 20 games, he's averaging 25 points, seven boards, five assists. He's an above average versatile defender. He's shooting 50% from the field, 50% from the three-point line, 91% from the free throw line. I mean, like, How many players in the Eastern Conference can we definitively say are better than Chris Middleton right now?
1: Not very many. I would still have him on the All-NBA team. Uh, You know, I don't know who you have to knock off, but I would have him on there for sure. And I'm right there with you. It's been incredible because, you know, he comes off a summer where he gets the huge contract and kind of no-shows at the FIBA World Cup. And I was like, oh boy, This guy is going to be set up to become like the biggest punching bag of all time because now he's got the huge money. He's not really that classic number two guy. Like this narrative of him being like underrated and underappreciated could flip really hard to, oh, this guy's overpaid and, you know, he's a bum and blah, blah, blah. And instead he's like held all of that stuff off by playing awesome basketball, but it goes back to them just getting more comfortable with what they want to do. You know, Bud knows Chris Middleton better. Middleton knows their system better and exactly when he can step forward and do it. Giannis and Middleton have played together for a while now and they, they click quite well. And that's why I just feel like these guys are a buzzsaw, man. Like I think that a lot of the propping up of their competition it's kind of hot air. It's like people trying to fill time. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, especially in the Eastern Conference, I'm not sure who takes them down. The team that I keep coming back to when I think about this Milwaukee Bucks squad, is it crazy to compare them to like the 91 Bulls when Jordan finally gets over the hump? Like, can you see shades of that where everyone's doubting, 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 you know, Detroit keeps handling them. It's like, oh, this team can't do it then he has, you know, Jordan finally gets through the finals, but then he's playing against magic who's won it before. So there's just kind of like this thought in the back of some people's mind, like, oh, well, you know, now he's got to get through another champion and, and the Lakers are the Lakers and everything else. And instead, you know, it's like Michael Ascendant knocking everyone off in his way, taking care of business and finally getting crown. I mean, there feels like there's like 1991 Mike vibes to what Giannis is doing this year. That's all I'm saying. No, I totally feel that. I
3: mean, I, I went back and tried to look at some basic statistics to compare them to some of the best teams of all time in the, in the conversation of whether or not they can win 70 and just how dominant they are. I mean, first of all, from here on out, they're 50-8. and eight. They have the fourth easiest schedule for the rest of the season, which just doesn't seem fair. Um, they have three no. back-to-back
1: that's hilarious yeah. that's hilarious and i also feel like they've made the hard parts of their schedule look easy too like it you know how many times do they ever really get pressed or pushed or like made uncomfortable it's rare it happens like once a month it 100 and uh i mean a, a part of that is just because like i said
3: they they don't play who their opponent is they don't adjust like the raptors adjust based on who they're playing the celtics adjust based on who they're playing like in in just not not in like a 100% game to game but you know what I mean like the the just stylistically what Milwaukee does it doesn't matter who it it could be the Harlem Globetrotters the Washington Generals it wouldn't matter they would play the exact same way but for the rest of the season the Bucks only have three back-to-backs left at Miami at Denver and home versus Atlanta they play the Lakers in Los Angeles they have the Raptors two more times they have the Celtics two more times and then they close the season with four games against the Nets the Hawks and the Cavs so I'm just looking at that real quick, and I don't want to bore our listeners, but I just want to go back and make a historical comparison very quickly. Um, So I looked at Basketball Reference's simple rating system, which is a metric that takes into account average point differential and strength of schedule and all that. There are only four teams in NBA history that have ever finished above an 11 in that rating system. All four of them won the championship. Right now, the Bucks are on pace to become the fifth team to finish above 11, and only the '96 Bulls finished with a higher winning percentage than the Bucks currently have. So, like, that is insane to me. And everything I just said that was critical about Bud's inability to evolve—it's like sometimes it's just like who. Maybe that's just completely like, as you said, hot air. Like, it it might not even matter. Just like this teams like this that are this dom-
1: dom- dominant. Uh, it does not happen by accident. Well, look, it could matter for sure. I mean, because if they have to go, I mean, if Giannis has to go against Kawhi in the finals, Bud's going to need to bring his A game, right? I mean, that's a series that Bud could absolutely lose for sure. I just think it gets a little overplayed too much when we're harping on these, you know, the little negative criticisms here, when you're describing a team that right now has the fourth best point differential in nba history right better than the best golden state warriors teams from a couple of years ago nearly on par with the 96 bulls and not too far behind the 72 la lakers i mean come on like this and <laughs> and if they were the lakers imagine if the lakers had that body of work right now you know with lebron and how much hype would we be doing greatest team they of would all cancel time? the season yes. they, would, they would cancel the season for sure. There would have been rings already handed out. Um, there's no doubt we would have had a, a championship ring ceremony coming out of the all-star break for the Lakers. So th- that's <laughs> why I understand if you know, you're know you a Bucks fan, you're frustrated like you're getting short, si- uh, your short shrift here, and you're also kind of sitting there cackling and laughing and being like, yeah, line these guys up. Let's run right through them. I do think it's possible that they go like 12-2 and two through the Eastern Conference playoffs. I think they're going to sweep the first round no problem. If whoever they get in the second round, I could see that being a sweep as well. I mean, maybe five games, and then of course you know Eastern Conference Finals. They're going to get someone good. They're going to have to do it on the road. There could be some tense moments there. But if I had to predict like over under right now for losses for Milwaukee through the first three rounds of the playoffs, I would put it cumulatively at two point five. And maybe that sounds a little aggressive for me, but you know I'm okay being on that island. That's the kind of faith I have in Giannis. Now let me put an even finer point on this if you live in Milwaukee, you guys need to commission a billboard. Get it somewhere on Coach Bud's ride to and from the arena so he has to see it, and it just needs to say 4-0 MPG. That's right, 40 minutes per game. That is the benchmark we need for Giannis in the crucial moments. We cannot have series slip away from Milwaukee because he's sitting on the bench and I understand there's foul trouble involved sometimes you know he just can't control himself and and that is an issue I think it's a major um, factor there's also fatigue um, mm-hmm. you know he goes so hard even during the all-star game he went so hard he asked out of the game at times but the fact of the matter is they have to change their approach on this stuff they have to let their best player decide it and the other thing I would say about Coach Bud is—he better not screw up the seventy win thing either. Okay, don't sit these guys for the last two weeks of the season for no reason. Seventy is such a hallowed number in the NBA, and you're going to have such a ridiculously easy first round matchup. Go for it. Sprint through the tape. Give Giannis that seventy win so he has it on his all time you know resume. He might not care now, but when Giannis is forty and or fifty, looking back on his NBA career, that's an awful nice you know feather in his hat, right? So make sure he gets it. Take care of business, Milwaukee. All right, I'm done lecturing Mike Budenholzer. <laughs> when you said 40, I was like, Giannis is probably going to win an
3: MVP that season. So surprised, so probably, so probably going to like lead the league in in three-point
1: percentage. So yeah, I don't think I, he's going to be looking back then. I know. That's why I self-corrected to 50 on the fly. I made the same mistake <laughs> that you realized. Um, well, let me get a prediction from you. I laid mine out. I think they're going to get seventy, and I think they're going to go twelve and two through the postseason. Uh, just what's your initial feelings on either one of those questions in terms of win total and what the playoffs could look like? And granted, look, it's not even March yet, so we're you know this is a little bloviating for me, obviously. But uh, what what is what else is new, right? But where would how would you handicap those two uh, those two marks? I would I
3: would be surprised, honestly, if they did not get to seventy. Um, I don't think that it would make a lot of sense, honestly, to bench Giannis down the stretch or, or give Chris Middleton rest or Eric Bledsoe or whoever you want to, to sit. I think that their rhythm and uh, their intensity heading into the playoffs really matters. And I think it's also just like we all say that the regular season doesn't matter and this and that. But like. It's a, co- a humongous confidence boost. Uh, I, like, I know that the Warriors didn't win the championship when they won 73, but like if you win 70, you, you were going to feel really good about yourself. You did something that basically, you know, there are 82 games every season for every team, and it's happened like twice that a team has won over 70 games. So uh, it, it's, it's an incredibly difficult mark to, to reach. Um, so I would be surprised if they did not get it, just based on how they've played against their competition throughout the regular season. Uh, As far as the playoffs goes, I just I do not want to write off entirely the Celtics or the Raptors. I think both those teams are really good. I think that also a second round matchup potentially I know that the Miami Heat have been like awful recently and they're kind of figuring things out with their new pieces. But I think they match up really well and really fascinatingly against the Milwaukee Bucks. And they also have a ton of three-point shooters And in a seven-game series, small sample size. You know, if you can shoot the crap out of the ball, like, anything could happen. And if the Bucks play their style and they allow these three-point shooters to get hot, who knows? So I don't want to—like, I don't—I'm not predicting that the Miami Heat will beat the Bucks, but I just want to say that they're interesting to me and— the Celtics, with how Tatum has played recently in February, averaging 30 points a game, That's, that kind of just changes the complexion of their team. And I love the Raptors. I think that they're the best coach team, and they can do so many different things. Uh, Thursday nights,
1: or tu- I should say Tuesday nights lost, notwithstanding. Yeah, I can't wait for the Bucks to just just destroy all these teams. You're trying to, <laughs> you're, you're trying to prop up here, Michael. I cannot wait to see it. You know, in the trade machine where they, like, when you're – you know, lining up deals and then they'll have the estimate of like, oh, this deal adds three wins or this deal costs you (laughs) five wins. Didn't that Memphis and Miami trade wind up like costing both teams like five wins? (laughs) Like if we went back to to use a trade machine on it, I mean, Memphis is kind of falling apart, not just because of that uh, trade, obviously, but Miami too, kind of hitting the skids. Funny how that works. All right. We've got some great questions here. One of our MVP emailers, Michael, his name is Thaddeus. He likes to write in essays, and he puts a lot of thought into his takes, and he wanted to basically say, look, is it time for Gary Harris to get a change of scenery this summer? Does he need a life preserver out of Denver? Is it just not working? And he went through and named a bunch of other guys he thought needed life preservers. Of course, Aaron Gordon, who's probably needed to be saved from Orlando for like the last five years. Uh, He put Spencer Dinwiddie from the Nets on his list, Otto Porter Jr. from the Bulls on his list, and he has some other names as well. Um, I'm curious. First of all, I know you wrote on Gary Harris uh, for SB Nation this week. Just first, like, what is up with Gary Harris, and what do you think the implications are? I guess from his struggles for the Nuggets this season, and then what could it mean? I guess for him heading into the summer, like, is it time for those two to part ways, team and player? I mean, it's going to be tough for them to part ways just because he's
3: due, I think, $39 million over the next two years guaranteed. And that, that was once like a really good, interesting trade asset type of contract where he was kind of underpaid on it based on his skill set from two years ago. And now it's like, who wants that contract? I mean, Harris has battled a lot of injuries over the last two years. Uh, to key parts of the body like your hips your your, your hamstrings your th- your thighs like these are big parts of the body for a guy who needs to chase around shooters off screens who likes to run some pick and roll who needs his legs to get his three-point shot going and play as physically as he does so I think injuries have been a factor but also like he's he's been playing big minutes like there are only th- uh, three players in the league right now who have av- who are averaging at least 30 minutes a night would have a true shooting percentage below 500. That's RJ Barrett, Darius Garland, and Gary Harris, and it's it's kind of stunning. Like when to, I first saw that stat, it's to it's be shocking.
1: honest. As soon as you said RJ Barrett, you just you go woof. You know, it's like yeah. oh god, you're in the category with that guy. Oh dear. Oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but like two years
3: ago when he was 23 years old, like he was. I don't know what your your expectations were of him or what you thought of him, but he was just such a perfect piece for. A budding young core like just he's three and D but he could also take it off the bounce he had really nice athleticism I mean a really smooth three-point stroke he could defend multiple positions he can still defend which is really nice and key a key part of uh, Denver's defense going forward uh, but like his usage is way down, his touches are way down. He just doesn't seem as confident as he once was. He's not hitting threes. Uh, it's really troublesome for them because they thought, I mean, I wrote in my piece, like uh, on their drive towards, uh, you know, the upper echelon of the league, it's like they're going hundred miles an hour and then they just hit a pothole. And that pothole is this, this ridiculous slump uh, and decline and stagnation. By Gary Harris, and I don't know how you recover from something like that.
1: Gary Harris is like the wheel well that's sparking as they're trying to drive (laughs) down the street. Um, Boy, beautiful mental imagery for that. You asked about my expectations for Gary Harris earlier in his career. He was starting to trend towards like skinny Bradley Beal, right? I mean, uh, to a certain degree, in terms of he can do multiple different things on offense, and then he's, like you're saying, solid on defense. That didn't necessarily mean he was going to be an all-star, especially in the Western Conference, where it takes a lot more than that to be an all-star. But um, he was going to be very helpful and kind of a core piece. I mean, just to put like just basic numbers on it, you go back to his age 23 season in 2018, he's averaging 17, 3, and 3, basically shooting 49, 40, and 83. And this year he's averaging 10, 3, and 2, Shooting forty percent from the field, thirty percent for on threes, and he's still hitting his free throws. Congratulations there. So, uh, <laughs> not good. I mean, big time unexpected decline. And I think some of that is you know contextual and situational because you know Jokic yep. is uh, eating up a lot more uh, just touches and, and everything else than he did maybe previously a couple years ago. And they brought in some other pieces, whether it's Porter or whoever else. But still, I mean, like to have a guy basically bleed almost half of his production away in two years when he's supposed to be entering his prime and just not being able to hit a shot for five months straight, it's not great. It might be worse than a pothole, Michael. Um, If you're Denver, are you ready to part with an asset to trade him? Like how, how bad has this gotten?
3: I think that might be overdoing it. I think you just kind of, you bet on him. You bet on him to figure out what's going on and you bet on him to adjust and turn it around and get healthy and feel better about himself. But like the the good part of this for Denver is that you mentioned him, Mike, Michael Porter Jr. Like he's just kind of like this life raft who like if things get too off course, like he will come in and I think, you know, he has the ceiling of being the second best player on this team. And if that happens over the next two or three years, then it won't really matter about Gary Harris. It'll be Jokic, Jamal Murray, and Michael Porter Jr., and that's your big three. And I mean, that's just a really solid big three that they they complement each other. They don't overlap too much. So if they did not have Michael Porter Jr., then they would be in a lot of trouble right now, I think, especially just, you know, you look at Paul Millsap, too, and his age situation and his contract situation, uh, they would need to... To like change gears here pretty quickly. Um, for sure. But- and
1: it's a fascinating dilemma for their front office because we've talked about their patience before. They've exercised incredible patience and it's really paid off at times, but they were too patient to me with Millsap in terms of, you know, his life cycle as a player. Like I think they're kind of hanging on to him. I would have tried to trade him at the deadline for something, use that contract to maybe bring in another player. And I don't know where they go with him going forward. If you bring him back, I mean, hopefully you get him on a really good deal. How much can you really expect going forward from him? I think it's an open question. And the fit stuff with Porter is going to become an issue at some point. Now with Harris, again, you're going to have the loyalty factor because you're the one who built him up in the first place, right? This is his sixth season in Denver. You got all of the credit for turning him into a big-time player with that slow development and having your kind of clear-cut backcourt of the future between him and Murray. That was the picture, right? But sometimes the picture doesn't come to fruition, and if you're Denver this summer, it's like, look, you have to make a decision here. Like, is this guy going to hold you back? Especially if he winds up kind of costing you, uh, you know, the ability to win in the playoffs this year, uh, you could have to make a really tough decision on a guy who's done everything right. He's been friendly. He's embraced the market. Uh, he's, you know understood his role and taken a step back when he's needed to, as other guys have kind of blossomed, right? Um, he's done it all the right way. Sometimes those are the toughest decisions, right? Not the guy who's a jerk about it, asking for more playing time. I think it's always easy to trade Dion Waiters, right? Very simple, very, very <laughs> simple uh, to to have the meeting and say, all right, Dion's going to get out of here. Much more difficult to trade a Gary Harris. And I'm wondering, you know, have they reached that point? this summer, I mean, to me, it's the, these playoffs are the ultimatum, you know, the referendum. You know, you show up or you're gone. Mm-hmm. That That's how I would look at it. Now, from uh, Thaddeus's list here, Michael, of guys like Aaron Gordon, Spencer Dinwiddie, Otto Porter Jr., people he wanted to give that life preserver to this summer. Did any of those names jump out to you, or did you have any others you wanted to add in? Uh, I mean, I agree with all of
3: these, except I, I like... Otto Porter Jr. is not opting out. <laughs> I got news for for Thaddeus on that one. Um, but yeah, Aaron Gordon, it would be great if he finally left and he could kind of realize a different version of himself and uh, y- utilize, uh, you know, his versatility as a defender in a more consequential environment. That would be good. And then Spencer Dinwiddie. I mean, I've, I've we've talked about this before, like a Spencer D- Dinwiddie for Aaron Gordon swap would be really convenient for both sides, I think. But the player who I I kind of sprung into my head the first time I read this question and who is in, who's, who should be like the president of the Life Preserver Club, I'm already
1: there with De'Aaron Fox. Like, wow. the Kings, yeah, I'm already there. The heaters. Kings are- You're down in total- Florida just unleashing <laughs> some heaters on us, Michael. You really want the Kings to part with the best thing that they've got going for them. The Kings fans are going to be irate, Michael. Dude, I I 100%, but I'm just looking at it from De'Aaron Fox's
3: perspective. Like, he plays for an embarrassing organization that will, when will the Kings not be embarrassing? Lord knows when. Uh, He's averaging the quietest 20-7 and of all time. He's getting to the free throw line more than he did last year. His usage is up, but his turnover rate isn't. Like forget about Luca. Like if you're Fox, imagine watching the Memphis Grizzlies with John Morant getting to run pick and roll with Jaron Jackson Jr. and being like, I, why can't I have that guy as my teammate? Like I would be so frustrated. That should be him instead. Instead, like Marvin Bagley is hurt all the time and he's throwing lobs to Jabari Parker and Alex Len. Like (laughs) he has a coach in Luke Walton who wants to play slow, despite the fact that Fox might be the fastest player in the league with the ball. Buddy Heald is suddenly coming off the bench, and their minutes are staggered, which means despite all their success last season, they are not usually playing together a ton. And, you know, the breakout seasons that Ingram and Booker and Tatum and Donovan Mitchell had, I I thought that that was going to be Fox. And he suffered an injury earlier in the year, but since he's come back and been healthy, he's looked terrific and no one
1: cares. So if I was De'Aaron Fox, I'd be like, get me out of here. I'm already sick of this. Boy, uh, year three and you're ready to run him out of town. Hasn't even completed the rookie deal. I think that he's going to need to exercise a, a little bit more patience and restraint. I think with the Bagley factor, it's really tricky because the common answer, I think, from front office uh, or from ownership. To a player in Fox's situation who's feeling frustration, is like, look, man, like you're only 22. You know, Bagley's just getting his feet wet. Give him another year and, and see how it goes. But I think the problem is, from a fit perspective and just kind of like a skill set perspective, even if Bagley's healthy, it's going to look more fun offensively. But is that really going to translate to more victories, right? Like, is he going to be able to find a position defensively? And do the other things that you need to contribute to victories, or is it going to wind up being where like they run pick and roll, he dunks, you know, fairly well, and and he gets his numbers, but it's all kind of popcorn stats and empty calories, and there's no movement in the standings, right? Um, I think those are the kinds of things that I would be nervous about if I was Fox, and I would be really nervous about if I was Vlade, because deep down, some part of him has to understand that that's <laughs> that's the reality. And, you know, any frustration that's already simmering is going to boil over at some point. The other thing that would really frustrate me if I was Fox is just the way the Buddy Hill thing was handled, right? With the money hands and like, we're going to take care of this guy. You know, he comes in with this whole attitude and Buddy Hill's just not very good. I mean, that's the problem. And people got really excited about his three-point shooting numbers. And I understand that, but there's more to the game than that. He's not contributing to victories really in any meaningful way. He's creating these weird kind of power dynamics or conflicting interests with guys like Bogdanovich where, okay, what's your pecking order look like? How do people stay happy and everything else? And as a point guard, it's tricky because what you would want from a player in Fox's position is to have that force of personality where you kind of rally everyone behind you, keep them all in line and say, hey, this is going to be how it is. But he's so young and those guys are older than him. And it's been such a dysfunctional environment and a losing environment for so long That's asking an awful lot of any 22-year-old point guard to be able to pull that off, right? So um, I get what you mean. I'm not sure that the life preserver is coming for Fox. I would, you know, I think that he'll be the last one to go there, basically. Like, I could see the coach, the front office, and basically every single other person on that roster moved or fired before they part with De'Aaron Fox. At least I hope that's how they approach the situation.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to use, I, I 100% agree with all that, but I just wanted to use this time and this space to say that I see you, dear and Fox, you're great, you're awesome, I love watching you play, and I feel your pain. I understand what's happening.
0: There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge, or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
3: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor.
2: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
3: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
1: Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh?
0: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm Ah,
1: <laughs> 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 ski slopes. Let's
0: do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby.
1: Wait. Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
2: Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
1: We've got a couple other lighthearted questions here, Michael. Let's get into it. It's sumo in Ottawa writes, and he says, I'm with you, Ben. I want Zion. I want it all the time. He's must-see TV. Uh, that's that's pretty personal there, Sumo, but good for you. Uh, the He said, the last time I was this infatuated on an athlete uh, was when a certain moody baseball player in San Francisco whose body and head swelled up like the Incredible Hulk when he was flicking home runs out at a ridiculous rate. So I think he's comparing Zion to Barry Bonds here. He said, fortunately, I believe our new Hulk is all-natural. Then he writes, if Zion was kidnapped and held for ransom, which of Zion's benefactors should the kidnappers call first to ensure top dollar and the quickest, cleanest transaction? Would it be Nike, Adam Silver, his agent, or the owner of the Pelicans? They all have a lot to lose if, God forbid, the human torpedo happens to disappear. So Michael, do you have any nominations on the Zion gets kidnapped, how do we save him front Who do you think the kidnappers should call first to really extort the maximum price and leverage? So, (laughs) this is a really dark question. Um, I think that the Pelicans'
3: ownership would be, like, the first answer that people would come to. But the owner of a team always has the option of selling the team for, like, a billion dollars and just walking away. So... I don't necessarily think that in this case I would call the owner. I think it's Adam Silver, honestly. And like when I look at it from the league's perspective, Zion isn't just a once in a 20 year span type of talent, but he's like incredibly fun to watch. And you do not need to be a diehard basketball fan or even understand the game to appreciate what he does on the court. Like I told that anecdote earlier about watching the game with someone who doesn't know anything about basketball and he could not take his eyes off the screen. So that's a sign of absolute greatness. And players like this do not come along, forget about once in 20 years, like we've never, ever, ever seen anything like Zion. Uh, Like in his prime, the league should be even more popular because of him than it is right now. And right now it's very popular despite Uh, declining television ratings so like I think that he's just a critical figure going forward in terms of carrying the torch there's a lot of really talented young players but uh, in terms of carrying the torch when LeBron hangs him up for good like Zion's going to be the face of basketball I think you know Uh, I think like Luca will be there and there's some other names to throw out there but Zion is going to be at the forefront and so if you lose him you lose a ton just a ton of marketability.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, it's a billion-dollar proposition here. I, not to make this all about myself, but I think the kidnapper should call me. Um, when I read this question, uh, Michael, I was picturing myself in one of those like 24-style TV shows, or like uh, you know those heart-racing, thrilling type movies where like the main character is just constantly sprinting through public places, like trying to like get things done. Um, it's sad to say this and admit this publicly, but I'm not sure that there's anything I wouldn't do. I mean, Jack Bauer would be a fair comparison for my approach to saving Zion. I, if I needed to go to the NBA league office and like personally, like you know, Hector Adam Silver to get him saved by the kidnappers, if I needed to like cull together, you know, venture capitalist money or, uh, you know, sneaker money to try to make this deal done. If I had to go, you know, deep into some unknown jungle and negotiate with guys with machetes for the future of this this kid's career, I'm pretty sure I would do all of it and not think twice. So I would recommend that uh, the kidnappers call me. All right, Michael, we got another question. This one's about you. Ross writes in, Michael's been a fabulous addition to Open Floor because he provides conflicting opinions. He and Ben always get after it. That's nice of, of Ross to notice. He goes on to say, I want to thank Michael for kindly offering his opinions on a recent Locked On Sons podcast. He was both kind and insightful. He says, We know Ben frequently joins the Locked On Family podcast, so can we expect a Ben Golliver appearance on the Locked On Sons podcast? First of all, Ross doubt I'm going to get invited. I'm pretty much the number one critic of Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton at this point. Not sure that that invitation is going to be extended. But Michael, I wanted to ask you this. I mean, I was blown away by this question. First of all, very nice for Ross to say this. How were you possibly kind and insightful on a Suns podcast? Like, is that just your optimistic nature you're always bragging about? Or like, can you walk us through that guest appearance and how you were able to strike such an uplifting tone about this team? (laughs) Um, I don't want to step
3: on uh, a story I'm going to be writing next week but it is pretty rosy about the Phoenix Suns going forward and I've been meaning to bring this up with you Ben uh, offline uh, DeAndre Ayton looks really good and like defensively he's making strides on a game to game basis so I mean like I, I'm gonna spin the question back towards you. Like, do you think that your rant after his season debut this season, uh, do you think that
1: motivated DeAndre Aiden to be the best he could possibly be? Wow, you're you're giving me the credit for the Sun's turnaround. This is great. <laughs> what brilliant, brilliant podcast co-hosting work from you. I thought you were about to rub it in my face and say, Hey idiot, DeAndre Aiden's proven you wrong, but you're actually you know, you're gonna give me the the inspirational credit. Look, needless to say, I need to see a little bit more uh, from DeAndre Aiden before I'm going to get too excited, but there has been promising signs of development. But I even want to zoom back a year because there was this long, intense argument that I had with Suns fans. They were death threatening me and all this stuff over Devin Booker. And my basic argument was like, look, this guy has to do more from a leadership and a defense perspective if it's going to translate to wins. Just period. That's what has to happen. He has to do those things consistently. He has to emerge as a locker room leadership figure down there if they're ever going to get pulled out of this muck. I mean, you're not going to be able to make the owner better. The coaches are going to probably be cycling and they got a good one in Monty Williams. The front office is going to be cycling and it's inexperienced right now. Those are major challenges. The only, the only way or the smoothest way for this thing to turn is. Is for Booker to really step up and be that guy, and they absolutely hated hearing that, screamed at me about it forever, and you look again here at the standings, 24 and 35, 13th place in the Western Conference in what has been an absolute down year for the Western Conference with Golden State, Portland, Minnesota, San Antonio, all incredibly disappointing relative to expectations. So I'm just going to repeat what I said 12 months ago, and I'm not going to get invited on the Locked On Suns podcast, and that's fine it's not been good enough. It's not been good enough from their best player. And so congratulations that he backed into the all-star spot. Um, personally, I probably would have rewarded John Morant for Memphis's winning you know, prior to the all-star break, but he still needs to do more. This is still on his shoulders. If you are going to really, truly turn this thing around, it falls back on your best player. And that's Devin Booker. And, um, you know, that's my take, Michael. Probably not the kind and rosy optimism that we're going to be seeing from your column uh, on SBNation.com. I have seen some stats that say their new starting lineup has been just phenomenally uh, efficient and dominating, but um, I still need to see more, man. That's where I'm at. Yeah,
3: that starting lineup has been great. Uh, You know, i I, I throw it to you to basically let you redeem yourself a little bit, and you just go in on Devin Booker. Like, on
1: like I don't even know what's wrong with you, to be honest. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> uh, I like the things that he does well, and this is what always gets lost. People don't want to hear the heat and the criticism. How many years in a row are they going to lose? They went out and built a team around him with older veteran guys who were supposed to help stabilize and just kind of be – uh, you know, cog fillers. And it worked for about three weeks, and everybody got really excited. And then it completely fell to pieces, in part because of injuries, but injuries happen. And everyone just went back to making excuses. And that just frustrates me. Captain Accountability uh, has got his uh, underwear in a twist. Okay. That's all I can say. Uh, our last question here comes in from Manny. All right, Michael. And Manny says, I have a dilemma and I need your help. I'm going on a business trip to Philadelphia and I thought I should catch a Sixers game while I was in town. I'm a Heat fan, but my team won't be playing in the game that I would be attending. Should I still rep my squad regardless by wearing a Miami Vice jersey to the Sixers game, or should I sell out and buy some Sixers merchandise and comply with the social norms while avoiding heckling? I'm looking forward to your response. And he signs it a troubled Heat fan. So, Michael, this is a common dilemma that people face. Where do you come down on wearing just unrelated jerseys or uh, apparel to sporting events? And then can you advise Manny on whether he should sort of cross his enemy lines and get some Sixers gear? If you have to ask this
3: question, are you sure you're a Heat fan? I mean, that's, that's just how I want to start my Wow. Ex- be- wow. Like, and you're, you're coming at me for going at Devin Booker, and you're killing our guy Manny. Come on, Michael. No, I mean, shout out to you, Manny. I appreciate the question, but like it's a no-brainer. You never wear an opposing team's uh, outfit or jerseys or T-shirt jerseys or whatever to their game just to appease their fans. I mean, that's the whole point of fandom. You're supposed to rep your hood. So under absolutely no circumstances would I ever do that. I don't care where I am. Um, just to blend into enemy territory. I mean, if I were you, Manny, I would buy a brand new Jimmy Butler Miami Heat Vice t-shirt jersey, and I would wear that instead. Then that that's like what you got to do. That's, ex- that, that's, that's, that's like the A-plus move, in my opinion.
1: Wow, you're going full troll mode in Philadelphia with all those guys who throw batteries at Santa Claus. That's your game of course. plan? I don't think this is good advice at all, Manny. Okay, I'm going to go kind of the other direction here. First of all... It's okay to be Switzerland in certain situations, right? You don't <laughs> oh, Jesus. you don't necessarily have to always rep your team, and you definitely don't need to cross the line and rep somebody else's team. So I think it's okay to go neutral to a basketball game. Personally, it bothers me when people wear completely unrelated jerseys to sporting events. Now, if there is a reason for it. Uh, like if you're wearing like a Cavaliers LeBron jersey or like a high school jersey of a player who happens to be in that game and it's not strictly one of those two teams that's playing, I'm cool with that. I- I'm actually fine with that, but if it's just a random jersey because you're a fan, uh, I- I don't know. It just seems a little bit awkward and weird. It feels like you're a tourist and you don't really know what you're doing. You're, you're kind of like in that khaki shorts club of like, hey, I'm at the Eiffel Tower wearing khaki shorts. I look like a dork. That's sort of just how I feel <laughs> when uh, I, I see people doing that. So I would resist the temptation to wear the heat jersey, Manny. but I would also completely echo what Michael said. Do not just grab a Philadelphia 76ers jersey for no reason if you have a rooting interest now I will say this when I go on my win connoisseur tours and I, I go watch you know great sporting teams uh, you know across the the country whenever I get the chance to do that it might be Alabama football uh, you know wh- whoever it might be as long as I don't have like a strict rivalry um, against those teams I do like to collect souvenirs or, or jerseys uh, a lot of the time The main thing I collect is magnets from everywhere I go, and and people who have been longtime listeners know that, Um, but I don't mind grabbing a t-shirt or or grabbing a jersey as long as I don't feel like I'm going to be a sellout when I wear it, and most of the time I get home and I never wear it again, so it's usually just kind of a waste of money, and Mandy, I would warn you about that. If you buy an MB jersey, first of all, he's probably getting traded in July, and second of all, you're never going to wear the MB jersey in South Beach unless he gets traded to Miami, and then you're going to get a Miami Vice MB jersey, and you're going to feel way better about it, so... I would say protect your wallet, do not invest in the Sixers stuff, consider just going neutral to this game. Um, And by all means, protect yourself from the Philly fanatics, like do not get in a situation where an old guy is giving you double fingers and throwing a battery at your head because you thought it would be cool to rep your very awesome Miami Vice jersey. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it, Michael. Uh, I have a – we'll close real quickly, I guess, on
3: a personal story I have uh, attending Wells Fargo Center when I was in college. Uh, I wore a Ray Allen T-shirt when he was on the Boston Celtics Uh-oh. Uh, there. It was a Celtics-Sixers game. Ray Allen hit a game-winning corner three, and uh, that jersey was almost ripped off my body. So wow. I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm backing up. I'm putting my money where my mouth is with this advice. Like, I did it, and so can you, Manny.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. You're saying man up, Manny. Be ready to (laughs) risk your life and risk it all for your squad. That's an incredible story, Michael. I'm glad you're here to tell it. Frankly, I was worried that you were going to die halfway through that story. Um, Needless to say, we've come to the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Um, Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Vias and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter at Ben Golliver. Go to my Twitter page, sign up for my Washington Post newsletter. Uh, It is so appreciated that so many of you guys have done that. Uh, Thank you so much. Hey, Michael. Until next week, when I presume you're going to be back from Florida with all sorts of takes uh, and ready to get back into the grind, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.
3: Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh?
0: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country.
2: Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design?